EST is sponsored by Pastor Talk by Lifeway. Join host Marty Dern as he interviews pastors, professors, authors, and other ministry practitioners. Pastor Talk gives you tools and encouragement to shepherd your flock well. Subscribe to Pastor Talk in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, or listen online at lifewaypastors.com. Hi, and welcome to EST. If you love the established church, this is the place to have conversations about why the established church matters, how to better serve her, and to hear stories every week about how God is using the church for His glory and our good. The show is hosted each week by Sam Rayner, Josh King, and Micah Fries. We're glad you're here. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of EST. My name is Micah Fries, and I am hanging out in the studio with uh, my good friend, Alvin Reed. Doc, it's good to have you here with us. Good to be with you, Micah. Hey, so Alvin Reed is a senior professor, as a matter of fact, of evangelism and student ministry at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He's been there since 1995. I was thinking about this, Doc. I I shouldn't tell you where I was in 1995. (laughs) Go ahead. Lay it on me. I was Uh, in high school in 1995. yeah. Yeah, you young punk. That's okay. Yeah, you know, almost finished up. But anyway, he's also the founding (laughs) Bailey Smith Chair of Evangelism at Southeastern. And what I love about Doc is uh, he's the pastor to young professionals at his home church, Richland Creek Community Church in the Wake Forest area. And um, he goes by Doc. He's written a brand new book. He's written a ton of books that you should read, but he's written a brand new book that's my favorite book that he's written called uh, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. We've actually uh, led studies at our church already through the book. It's the most helpful, accessible book I've ever read to help get your people to share the gospel, help train them how to do that without feeling like it's um, just a memorized routine, but rather just helping them to share the gospel in the rhythms of their normal everyday life and conversations. And the other thing I love about it, Doc, is the way you help people who are not extroverts feel comfortable sharing the gospel. Yeah, that's been one of the greatest responses I've gotten anecdotally from pastors and lay people and others and youth pastors is how many people say, for the first time in my life, I feel like I can talk about Jesus to somebody. And we've unintentionally made it like you have to change your personality and become this aggressive, gregarious type A person. Then you can witness. And, uh, you know, that's just not true. God created us the way we are. And so that's why I love the subtitle of the book, Sharing uh, Evangelism the Way You Were Born to Do It, not the way right. uh, you have to be cloned. Yeah, no, I think that's really good. Doc, I want to today, you know, as we're talking to these pastors, uh, almost, you know, the majority of the people who listen to this are either leading established churches or they're staff members in established churches, that sort of thing. I want to talk specifically about helping to engage the established church evangelistically. And you and I both know that that established, older established churches evangelize at lesser rates than new churches do. And uh, so let's talk about that. How do we begin to build evangelistic passion and fervor in a church particularly if it's an older church, you know, the average church is 85, 100 people. How would a pastor walk in and begin to build an evangelistic fervor in that church? Well, here's how you don't do it. You don't walk in and shame the people and guilt trip them because they haven't done it because they, they're they pretty much doing what they've been taught in their church for a generation or more. Um, I've preached in over 2,000 churches, uh, which means I'm old, like you pointed out earlier. But, but <laughs> one of the things I've noticed is whether it's a small church in Montana or a mega church in a city, every church has people who really love Jesus. I believe most people in most churches really do love Jesus and really do want to live for him. Uh, but we've made evangelism this compartmentalized thing that's for the sharks and the and aggressive. So I would start by being very encouraging. I would start by 
helping people see that, no, 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 you already were created by God to do this. That's what, that's what I try to do in the book. And so I would take the position that I'm not going to take a staff and beat you like a shepherd beats a wolf. I'm going to take you like a shepherd and walk with you and take you by the hand and, and kind of carry you forward uh, as we do this for the glory of God. Really? I mean, that's an old principle. You catch more flies with honey than vinegar, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's ultimately what you're arguing for is, sure. is to present an optimistic, positive vision for evangelism. Um, I would imagine a, a good part of that has got to be the pastor owning that themselves and having a passion for those who don't know Jesus. Talk to talk to us about that a little bit, Doc, because I, I feel like, um, and I'm among those, you know, I'm pastor in an established church, have most of my life, but I feel like a lot of times those of us who are pastors leading established churches, we love to talk about the importance of evangelism. We don't like to do evangelism nearly as much. Yeah, I think it's part of it's just because of the nature of our culture. We're so busy. We're hyper-driven. There's so many demands on a pastor's life. And so I'm a I'm a big defend, defender of pastors, but the reality is we all have time to do what's important. And so even as an evangelism professor a few years ago, I had to sit down and make a fundamental shift in my own schedule if I was going to have time for my neighbors and to meet people in coffee shops and to share the gospel. So I think we have to, we, as pastors, we have to ask ourselves, is there a consistency between what I say matters most and what I'm doing. Stephen Covey said, you don't prioritize your schedule, you schedule your priorities. And so if my leadership as a pastor is to set an example to the flock in sharing the gospel so that I'm regularly, if not weekly, mentioning, by the way, I shared the gospel with so-and-so or I left a gospel book with so-and-so, if, if, if I'm going to be doing that, I've got to make time for that. And so I think part of it is just looking at our calendar and saying, is there a consistency is there, and then the second thing I'd say is there are a lot of pastors that realize, especially in established churches, the world has changed. And, uh, sharing the gospel with a 25 year old today is different than it was 25 years ago. And I think helping pastors learn how to grow in their witness is important. It's okay as a pastor to say, you know, I'm not as effective today as I was 20 years ago. I share the same gospel. It's the same Jesus that I did 20 years ago, but I share very differently with unchurched young adults today because the way the gospel is applied may change, even though the gospel itself doesn't. Yeah. And I, th one of the things that you've been really helpful with me, doc, is, um, your, your pattern, you talk about patterns, rituals, you're, you've got a pattern of multiple places that you go. You go consistently over and over and over again. You're developing relationships with people who don't know Jesus and you've seen a lot of fruit. These people that you've gotten to know, waiters, waitresses, you know, servers in a coffee shop that you've seen a lot of fruit, a lot of those who have come to faith in Jesus and you've been able to baptize them and disciple them. And I think for me as a pastor, that was one of the things that had to shift for me probably about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was about eight years ago when I, st I mean, there's always going to be a need for people to hear the gospel from you in a situation where it might be the only five minutes you ever have with them. And so right. whether it's so, so a gospel booklet or a quick presentation of the gospel, there's always going to be a need for that. But the reality is the majority of our effective evangelism is going to happen through ongoing relationships that we have with people who don't know Jesus. And I just realized to your point uh, years ago that I didn't have a lot of relationships with people who didn't know Jesus. And so for me, I had to, you know, I started coaching my, my daughter's soccer team and that gave me, um, you know, access to a lot of people who didn't know Jesus. And in fact, my last, my last weekend, my last Sunday at the last church I pastored in Missouri, I baptized one of the dads of one of those girls on that soccer team. And then he turned around and baptized his little girl, uh, in the same day. 
And, but, but I had to, in order to do that, I had to create patterns, rituals where I was constantly in relational connection, uh, with people who didn't know, didn't know Jesus for years. Now I've been doing that with the Muslim community, going to the mosque. Talk to us about the need to develop some specific, uh, places, spaces where we inhabit regularly outside of the church, um, that leads to sort of evangelistic effectiveness. Yeah. One of the things I talk about in the book and when I, in the chapter talking about conversations is, is just to kind of walk through that and ask yourself, where are you most comfortable? I love the third place. I love a coffee shop. Uh, I play golf with my neighbors. I, I'm, I eat out a lot. So I'm in restaurants. So talking to servers, those are kind of natural patterns. And then in our young pros ministry, every month, folks that are new, I meet up with them at a coffee shop, uh, to share the gospel with them. So that's my pattern. My wife's more comfortable sitting at Panera with one young lady having a long lunch. Uh, and, and some people, some guys would rather go hunting with guys or go fishing or that kind of thing. And so I think part of you have, what you have to do is you have to decide, okay, what are the, what are the things that I love to do that aren't explicitly spiritual? What are hobbies I have? What are, and by the way, pastors, we need, we need hobbies. Uh, what are yeah, things I right. like to do that I can do with someone? Because part of our problem is most of the stuff we do, we go to the movies with believers. Uh, we play golf with believers. We we just do stuff with believers all the time. We hang out with believers all the time. And and so part of that is just getting in the mindset that I am a missionary in an unchurched culture. And so therefore, I've got to change my patterns to spend time with people out, you know, in the community, building relationships with people, not as a project, but because, man, I actually like people and want to, want to get to know them. And I've got no greater thing to share with them than the good news in Jesus. It makes me think of Bill Hybels. Uh, sailboat and his sailing team. Yeah. Anybody who's ever heard mm -hmm. Bill Hybels speak before has heard that a thousand times. He's been that, yeah. you know, been a part of that sailboat team for what, multiple decades. Yeah. Doc, one of the, one of the things I love about you is, um, you're not a millennial. I'm trying to, trying to think how to say this. And in, in <laughs> you're a dad to millennials. You really are. Yeah. So, so you're not, I think there's this perception. We need to go out and get really young pastors so that we can reach really young people, but you're not. Um, I mean, you, you're a dad to millennials and yet you're leading a ministry to young pros. And you're leading a ton of millennials to faith in Jesus. They're, they're getting baptized and they're, you know, they're in, in integrating into the church and being discipled as followers of Jesus. How are you effective at reaching particularly millennials, younger generations to come to faith in Jesus? And what would you say to a pastor who wants to lead their church to effectively reach millennials? Well, I'll say this. Um, we've got, and, and, and we, we haven't led as many crises as we'd like. But we have led some. You, you led our, um, you spoke at our getaway recently and yeah. we had young lady come to faith at the getaway and I'll be baptizing her mm -hmm. in January and, and a couple of others have, uh, come to faith that, that, that all of whom were unchurched just a few months ago. Uh, and so that's been the cool thing. One's Hispanic, one's African American, one's Anglo. And so we've seen different folks, young adults, mostly unchurched coming to Christ. It, it, it's, it's several things. First of all, we're unambiguous about the gospel. We don't have any hope to give anybody but Jesus. Secondly, we do a Titus 2 uh, approach, as you know, ha having been a part of our, our, our ministry. Our leaders are middle-aged. Uh, we got moms and dads of millennials mm -hmm. leading home groups, right. which is huge. Um, and then I'd say the, the big thing, you know, is the way we teach the gospel. We don't teach the gospel as an add-on at the end of everything we do. We teach the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to everything, and we teach it from the perspective of the great big story of the gospel. Uh, I've got a guy coming over in a little while today to help me move some stuff up to our farm, and I led him to Christ in this summer, baptized him in the lake, and uh, 
using the three circles, which is a form of the grand narrative. So we, we try to share mm-hmm. the whole big story of the gospel and help people see that the story that they're trying to tell in their lives has to be caught up in this bigger story of God found in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, in a, in a nutshell, I, in the book, I talk about how uh, I grew up in an America that was a lot like Acts 2, where Jesus, I mean, where Peter just stood up and said, uh, let me quote the Old Testament, Jesus is the Messiah. Because we could assume people we met knew something about the Bible. But today we live in Athens and the young adults I talk with, I assume they're like the Greek philosophers in Athens. And where did Paul start with them? He didn't start with the Old Testament. He didn't start with the Messiah. He started with creation and he showed them the whole big story of God. And I think that's, mm-hmm. so I think that's important too. Tim Keller said, I love this. He said, when we share the gospel, whether they respond or not, we should share it in such a way that they would wish it were true. And that's really what I do when I talk to people about Christ, helping people. I don't just assume because I like it and because it's changed me, they're necessarily going to like it or they're going to believe it. But I want to share it in such a way that they find it compelling, even if they reject it. And that's a really good quote, Doc. I, I love Tim Keller. Let, let me ask you this. I think you and I both, you know, we know the old D.L. Moody quote when someone attacked him for the way he did evangelism. And he said, you know, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way you don't. So Mm -hmm. uh, all cards on the table. We're for anyone who does evangelism. However you do it, just share the gospel. We want people to share the gospel. Yeah, I take students out knocking on doors some. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm for for all of it. I just think some some ways are more effective than others. That's what I want to drill down on a little bit. Because you talk about shift from Acts 2 to Athens. Um what might be some models of evangelism that those of us who have been in the church for a while are really comfortable with, but you're finding to be less effective? Well, I learned to share the gospel from some of the greatest in my era. And I am, I, I, and I mentioned in the book, I don't denigrate that. I'm grateful. But I learned basically to ask a couple of leading questions to interrupt people long enough to get their attention so that I could, you know, give them the gospel, uh, in a, in a pretty monologue kind of approach. Um, I still do that sometimes. I still, you know, if I see somebody that's open and listening, I'll do that, but I'm much more conversational. And and by the way, that's not novel. That's actually the new Testament. Jesus with the woman at the well, the rich young ruler again and again in the gospels, read those accounts again. He's having a conversation. Even Paul at Mars Hill, he's getting up, giving an address, but it's very conversational, dialogical in tone. And so I think we've missed uh, our, our focus on preaching, which is important, our focus on proclaiming the message, we've actually missed a very clear New Testament emphasis, and that is these are conversations people are having back and forth, and um, and I think that's really critical because the average adult has 27 conversations a day. And so wow. even if you're an introvert, <laughs> you're, still, you're still a professional at conversations. You may not be a professional at presentations, but you're a professional at conversations. Yeah, I think that's good. And I think you've made a really good point, Doc, that's helpful to to us. I think culture is increasingly becoming more like the first century in the sense mm-hmm. that it's becoming increasingly more story driven, narrative driven, mm-hmm. and relationally driven. And the Western the Western world for so long has not been like that, right? And yet we're right. becoming increasingly more like that, which means I think patterns in the New Testament can become increasingly more effective for us um sort of as we move forward. Uh, you know, sharing the gospel. Um, so, Doc, when you um, when you're in churches, you're talking to pastors, talking to people. What, what are the primary barriers that people provide as sort of objections to them sharing the gospel or reasons? I, I hear people say things like fear and I don't know enough. What, what's your experience? Well, it's, it's it's essentially two things. We don't want to be rejected, 
uh, and we're afraid we're going to fail. We're gonna afraid they're going to ask a question that we don't ans- can't answer. And, and it's amazing because when I tell people that nowhere in the Scripture does it say we have to answer every person's question, but the Bible says we're to give the reason for the hope that's within us, people are like, oh, so there's this idea that we have to be like the Bible answer man or answer mm-hmm. woman, and that's not right. true. We're, we're, we're to proclaim the gospel. We're ambassadors for the king. Uh, and so I still, I still would submit, though, that we, we think that they need some intellectual reason to overcome that, just like we think that when we're sharing the gospel with someone, it's always an intellectual thing. A lot of times it's just, they just need confidence. Our people need confidence. They need somebody to believe in them. Uh, and, and it's more than a pep rally, but we, we have underestimated the role of just helping people understand they can do something. Uh, we, we, we have a whole generation of people who are very comfortable isolated in their church buildings. But when it comes to stepping out on faith, um, and taking risks like sharing the gospel, what they really need is encouragement. They know they should. It's not like I have to convince them that this is biblical. It's just that, yeah, you know, you can do this. And, and that's why, you know, one of the things I love about the book and what B&H has done for me is put together this eight week journey so that people can kind of work through the book a chapter at a time in a group or in a church or individually and then grow in it. I, I compare, you know, our growth in witness to our growth in fitness that it takes time. But over eight weeks, you can really see an improvement and uh, growth in your witness that you won't get in a day or two. Yeah, I think, um, excuse me, I think it would be good for pastors to begin to uh, to grab a copy of the book, not only for themselves, but one of the things, that, Doc, I love that B&H has done is uh, provided, you know, boxes of these books where you can get 20 of them for just, what, $5 a piece, I Five think? Five bucks a piece for a hardback. That's a, that's a, that's a ridiculous deal. It's extraordinary. That's what we did at, at Brainerd, and we were able to train our people with it. Going back to the objections, Doc, let me. One of the things that I think maybe we've arrived at this time, and part of this I think is the shifting culture, right? So we we were in a culture where Christianity, or you know, maybe conservative, what's known as historic evangelical Christianity, may have not been the majority, but at least sort of had the home field advantage. So that's yeah. shifting now, and I feel like we're at this point in the in the cultural sort of we have this cultural moment where our people don't know how to have public faith. They know how to have faith in church. They know how to have faith behind closed doors with their friends. They don't know how to have faith in public, um, how to have a winsome faith in public, if that makes sense. Our good, our friend Bob Roberts likes to talk about this a lot, and he's modeling it really well in many ways. Uh, but I think one of the things we're going to have to do is train our people to winsomely, optimistically, lovingly share the gospel in a public space um, recognizing that people may not respond to it, but knowing how to do so in a manner that's not just, you know, growling at the, at the, uh, the customer service agent when they say happy holidays during the Christmas season. <laughs> yeah, I think that's <laughs> you know what true. I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, um, well, a lot of us have theological BO. We believe right, but we stink about it when we talk about it <laughs> because we don't really know how to do that. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think it's just helping people realize we, we need to learn how to, how to talk to people who disagree with us. We live in a culture where, uh, we're very divided. And so one of the, one of the principles I have about, I have five simple kind of guidelines for conversations. And one of them is a, is a, is a philosophy or a, a mindset. And that is we affirm people as creating the image of God without endorsing their lifestyle. So yes. I can have a relationship with a Muslim or a homosexual or a neighbor who's, 
very different from me in a lot of ways. And yet we can be friends, we can play golf together and know that we disagree on some things, but they're created in the image of God. And so that's fundamental. And so I can respect that person without endorsing, but I don't have to cave in my, my convictions and, and, and believe something that's not biblical. And, and our culture, by the way, for the largest, most part, don't doesn't believe that. They don't believe you can right. show kindness to someone while disagreeing with their position. But we're we're not of this world. We're of a different kingdom, and we're to live differently. And that's why I love First Peter, First Peter two, which says, uh, you know, with gentleness. Peter and Paul consistently, when they're talking about dealing with unbelievers, they use terms like honor and gentleness. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and compassion. And so we stand strong in our convictions, but we, we show com- kindness to others. There's no compromise of the gospel to be kind to people. Well, and I think what, I think you bring up a really, really good point, Doc. And that is m- many of us in the established church, um, are accustomed to a, co- a context and a culture where not only are we the majority, we're almost the people like us are almost the only people we know. And so maybe not people who go to the same church as us or believe theologically everything we do, but people who are culturally very similar to us. And in an increasingly pluralistic context, it's it's difficult for many of our folks in our churches to know how to engage in that world. How do you engage with the Muslim who moves in next door or the the LGBT couple who lives behind you or the transgendered child whose parents you happen to to know. I just, I think many of us struggle to get our arms around that. And we think that it's harder than it is. We, we don't realize it's just yeah. being gracious, being a good yeah. friend, being a well, good neighbor. And, and I think sometimes we get the idea that the whole world is hostile toward Christianity now, that the whole world right. has changed and now 98% is against us. That's not true. A, a recent Lifeway study showed that 78%, that's about four out of five unchurched adults, if they know someone of faith, they will either listen to you, share your faith, or have a conversation with you about it. Right. That's four out of five. And and by the way, right. that's exactly anecdotally what I've experienced. I my 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 one original quote is lost people are more amazed at our silence than offended at our message. I'm on airplanes talking to people, I'm encountering people in coffee shops, and I'm not seeing people getting hostile because I'm not a hostile person by nature. Uh and so if you're friendly to people, most people are friendly and you can talk about things on a serious nature. And there are going to be times that it's going to, they're going, they're not going to agree and they're not going to obviously respond to the gospel. But it, it, you know, it doesn't have to be hostile. I think, I think we stereotype a lot of things and we have a lot of straw men that aren't actually true when we are. That's why one of the things I say in the book is witness to the person that's actually in front of you and not the hypothetical person you think you're going to meet. Right. You know, I think, Doc, um, one of the things that we have to sort of move beyond is this perception that everybody knows what we believe. Everybody knows what a Christian believes. I mean, we live in a context where the vast majority of people around us don't genuinely know what an evangelical believes, what a Christian believes about being born again in Christ. I mean, they know snippets. They know pieces. I live in I live just south of Chattanooga, so I live across the border in Georgia. I was doing some research the other day and found that 70 percent of my county has no religious affiliation at all. 70%. Yeah. I'm in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Chattanooga is the most church city in America. And my county, one county south of Chattanooga, 70% of our population has no religious affiliation. So I've found that one of the most effective evangelistic conversations to have is when I meet someone just to ask them, tell me what you believe about God. Just, I'm interested. Tell Absolutely. me your story about yeah. faith and religion. And people love to talk about themselves. They love to tell you their story. And inevitably, it'll circle back around to the point where you get to share with them what you believe about God. 
And, uh, and I think we need to take better advantage of the fact that people don't know as much as we think they do. And uh, we have a story to tell that, that they very likely may not agree with, but may find very intriguing and, uh, and be willing to have a conversation with us about that. Yeah, I assume, I assume when I talk to someone that they don't know the gospel and they don't know and they certainly don't know the, the depth and the breadth and the wonder of this story. Uh, and that assumption is borne out overwhelmingly. Uh, it, it seemed to be true. So, and, and that doesn't mean I think of them like they're ignorant or they're, they're, they're stupid. It's just that, th- that this is a great, compelling, good news I want to share with them. And I'm not going to assume they already know it. I'm going to assume that this is an opportunity for me to tell that good news to them. Similar this is to one the early of, church. This is one of the things I love about your book, Doc. And I, again, I love all evangelism strategies that anybody will use. Praise the Lord for it. But one of the things I think we've done with evangelism over the past you know, few decades is we've made it such a memorized sort of recitation that to mm-hmm. some degree we've lost the wonder and the story of the gospel. And I love yeah. that in your book you're trying to recapture it's it's like a great epic superhero movie, you know, is, yeah, is well, what we're well, telling. I, yeah, and I talk about the gospel in two ways. There's the essence that it's never less than the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, but it's also more than that. It's the whole big story. Now, the center of our story, there's a bloody cross and a glorious resurrection, but that is, it is this great epic story that we 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 have the honor of telling people about. I mean, it's a it's a great great joy to share this story. It is. It's a privilege. And I, I think as pastors, those of us who are listening to this, the vast majority are either pastors or church leaders. Not only is it our privilege to share the story, but man, what a privilege and what a responsibility to know the people that are in our spiritual care, that we have an obligation to help push them to love the gospel. And maybe that's one of the first things we need to do to build an evangelism, you know, fervor in our churches is to make sure our people not only know it, but they love the gospel, but then equip them to do so. And, uh, you know, I like to say, Doc, that churches and Christians are like cars out of alignment. They constantly turn inward. And as pastors and leaders, when you have a car that's that's out of alignment, you have to overcorrect in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes in church with churches and Christians, we have a tendency to constantly turn toward ourselves. And, and church leaders have a re- responsibility and obligation to almost overcorrect toward mission, constantly keeping their people toward mission. Uh, otherwise they're going to find it difficult for their people to focus on it because their natural inclination is going to be, you know, with respect to self. And so uh, pastors, church leaders, love your people enough to constantly keep in front of them, the reality of uh, their community and their neighborhood and the the beauty of the gospel. Doc, if you, if if you could have one or two more minutes just to say anything you want to, to pastors about evangelism and equipping their people, not to mention your book, sharing Jesus without freaking out, what would you say? Well, I would say be sure you check out the landing page, sharingjesusbook.com, because you have all kinds of free resources there. You have, I have eight videos that are free for you to teach through the book in eight weeks. A lot of churches are doing that. There are role play videos where you can watch people sharing the gospel. There are, there's a promo video you can use if you want to teach this over eight weeks in your church and you want to pr- promote it ahead of time. So uh, my friends at, at Broadman Holman Academic have done an incredible job of of turning the book into a curriculum uh, to help people learn and grow and share their faith. The second thing I say is I, I wrote the book in such a way that you can plug in whatever, like if a pastor has put together a, a, a gospel approach to share that he's taught his people, you don't have to jettison that. I, I talk about the grand narrative in chapter two, but I mentioned 
if you use uh, the three circles or if you use exploring evangelism or you've developed your own little approach like some pastors have, you can plug that in and the principles are still the same. And so I've tried to do it very local church friendly, uh, not one size fits all because that's part of the part of the problem of the memorized presentation. Not that it's all bad, but it's a lowest common denominator, one size fits all instead of a recognition of the beauty and the 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 the, the, the diversity of the way God uses each of us personally. So I would I would say um, you know you've got pastors. We have to give our people a way to share the gospel. They have to have a tool. They have to have some basic gospel intelligence or gospel fluency uh, and then encourage them and then set the example before them. Doc, thanks for being with us. Uh, those of you who are listening, I hope that you will go to sharingjesusbook.com. I hope you'll check out the book. I, I, I kid you not. I'm as serious as I can be. It's the best book I've ever encountered to help equip and train our people to share the gospel. And more than that, to love sharing the gospel. We went through it with a group at our church. We had, we were expecting a few people to show up. We had over a hundred people come every week to get equipped. And I can't tell you how many times I had people say to me, I've never enjoyed sharing the gospel until this book freed me to, sh to enjoy sharing the gospel. And uh, I hope you'll check it out. I love Doc, love his ministry. Uh, in fact, I found out the other day, my dad's even having you come speak to his ministry yeah, here, here in a few wait. months. So it's yeah. going to be good. Uh, friends, check us out each week, download the uh, episodes and invite your friends to listen to EST and uh, sh join us on social media. Share the posts that you see there. Until next week, hope you have a good week and uh, keep on loving the local church. You've been listening to EST, a discussion for the established church. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as well as subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Support for EST is provided by Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. The mission at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. The school is located in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and offers more than 40 different degree programs ranging from Associate of Divinity to Doctor of Philosophy. With more than 3,400 students enrolled, Southeastern trains future and current ministry leaders to lead effectively, study the word diligently, and preach the gospel unashamedly. Learn more about Southeastern by visiting www.sebts.edu. And come check out our campus to see how you can join the Southeastern family and learn how to go to reach your community, your nation, and your world. Wherever you're going, Southeastern will help you get there.